knowing that Donna preaches from the lectionary, I felt I should try to speak on the Trinity, since this is Holy Trinity Sunday. And in the hope of finding an easy-to-understand explanation of the Trinity, I ran across an incident related to Alistair McGrath, a theologian at Oxford University. Incidentally, don't waste your time looking for a simple explanation of the Holy Trinity. There isn't one. McGrath recalled an incident from his childhood that happened one Sunday at church. And on this particular Sunday, the congregation had come to that portion of the service where they recited the Athanasian Creed. They had just solemnly intoned the words, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, And then the man sitting next to Alistair muttered much too loudly, the whole darn thing incomprehensible. Only he didn't say darn. (laughs) Professor McGrath's seatmate might be faulted for his irreverence, but not his accuracy. The Christian language of Trinity is incomprehensible. Why can't theologians and scholars find an easier way for those in the pews to speak of God. Why complicate matters with a language of Trinity, which is so often for the special, so difficult that is for the specialist, and more so for we ordinary believers? The answer is that the difficulty is built in. If we would talk about God who raised Jesus from the dead, if we would talk about God whose spirit calls us and gathers us, then we necessarily speak about God whose reality changes and breaks our language. Our language can never fully explain the fullness and the glory of God's absolute being. Unlike us creatures of time and space, God's being transcends these categories. And yet the language of Trinity makes it possible for us to speak of God in ways that somehow cut through our time and space. Through the language of Father, Son, and Spirit, we can begin to speak, though very imperfectly, about the eternal God who has come to be intimately involved in our time and space, the infinite God who has chosen to be intimately connected with us. I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand how there are three persons in one. I know all the analogies. I still don't understand. Intellectually, the doctrine of the Trinity is perplexing. Philosophically, it is mysterious. Experientially, however, it seems to be the only way to know. Only the language of Trinity presents to us as God revealed his own self. In the strange but wonderful language of Trinity, we meet God, the source of life, who yet relates to us. God, who puts on a human face for our sake. God, who is still active in the world and who is bringing triumphant power to bear on both the present and the future. This is the God who stands before us. This is the God who calls us into fellowship. This is the God who tells us to love. 
Now, is that so hard to do, to love? I want to confess that I have found it easy to love attractive people. I love people with agreeable personalities. I love men and women who laugh at my humor. I love men and women who agree with my theology. My problem is loving people who don't love me. Not so much the Muslims in Iran. They're so far removed from my daily life, at times it seems unreal, like uh, they live in a different world. I'm thinking rather of people I am in contact with. I find it difficult to love those who take pot shots at me. Difficult to love those who are closed-minded. Difficult to love those who think they have the truth, the whole truth, and all the truth there is to be had. But Jesus tells me that this is not particularly Christian. Don't even atheists and hardened sinners and drug dealers, don't they love each other? The Christian facet of love is to love as Jesus loved. Let me put it this way. Am I ready to treat those who disagree with me or do not like me, those who may even hate me, Am I willing to treat them as brothers and sisters shaped in God's likeness, truly children of God as I am, folk of flesh and blood for whom the Son of God died on a shameful cross? This is God with us. Remember the prayer Jesus left us? The Our Father. Our Father. Yours and mine and everyone else since human life began. He shaped each one of us out of nothing. No. He shaped us out of love. Not that God had to. It's simply that love has an all but irresistible urge to go out of itself, to share even God's love, especially God's love. How much did the Father love us? How much, John tells us, that God sent an only son that we might not perish but have life without end. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. If you think the world is a mess now, see it as God saw it from beginning to end and instead of letting it destroy itself, sent Jesus to save it. Not a cold gesture of amnesty, no. All of you are forgiven, not that. God's son born a baby as we are born from the body of a woman. God's son, an adolescent who learned as we learned, learned from Mary and Joseph how to love God, how to love the people of Nazareth. Flesh and blood Jew who was convicted as a criminal was lashed with whips and crowned with thorns, died murmuring from bloody lips, Father, forgive. Not only that, when Jesus returned to his Father wearing our flesh, he didn't leave us orphans. He sent us his Holy Spirit to teach us about God and ourselves, to be our power, to live in us as a temple of God. In his own words, the night before he died, I will ask the Father and the Father will give you another cup and he will be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. You know this spirit because the spirit abides in you and the spirit will be in you. Walter Rangwin, a writer and a Lutheran minister said, How young I was at the period of my crisis, I don't remember. 
young enough to crawl beneath the pews, short enough to stand on the pews and still be hidden while the adults were standing up singing hymns, old enough to want to see Jesus, young enough to believe that the mortal eye could see Jesus. I wanted to see Jesus. That was the core of my crisis, says Wangren. I mean, I wanted to see as our witnesses are able to see. I wanted to see those sandal feet. I wanted to see those strong hands. I wanted to see the deep love in his eyes. For it seemed to me in those days that everyone else in my church were seeing him on a regular basis. And that I alone was the only one who would deny the privilege of seeing Jesus. Well, the knowledge of my peculiar exile came all in a rush one Sunday when the preacher was preaching a mumbling monotone of a sermon. One sentence leaped out of his mouth and seized me. We are eyewitnesses, he said. Eyewitnesses. I sat straight up. I tuned in. I began to listen. And he said, we have seen the majesty of Jesus. No. I didn't say it aloud, but I thought it very loud. No, I haven't seen. I haven't been an eyewitness. And I looked around and checked the faces of the people in the pews. And none of them seemed to be awed. None of them were off in wonder. I looked at my mama who was sitting beside me. Her eyes were not dazzled. Everybody was sitting there sleepy-eyed, occupied with their own thoughts. And all at once, a stained glass picture of a prayer Jesus wasn't enough for me. The Jesus in my Sunday school books were merely pictures. They were a kind of a mockery. I didn't doubt that the Lord Jesus was actually there in his house somewhere. But where? And even before the preacher was finished preaching, I dropped to the floor and I peered through a forest of ankles, front and back, side to side. Maybe Jesus was down here on the floor with the other little children. Maybe he was on all fours. So I began to look for him. I went from room to room in the church. Sunday after Sunday I looked. I ransacked all the rooms of that large church. I looked in the furnished room. I looked in the choir loft. I looked in all the closets of the church, but I couldn't find him. And then one particular Sunday as the preacher was preaching a particularly long sermon during his monotones, I exercised the privilege of little children. I slipped away from my mom and I started down the halls of the church. There was one room. Maybe there was one room more holy than all the others and they only spoke of it in whispers or at deacon's meetings. And I had walked by that room often with a tingling hush. The one room in the church I'd never been in before. Not the preacher's study. I've been there. Jesus is not there. (laughs) (laughs) I went by this room and said, this must be where Jesus is. Women's restroom. (laughs) The only room I hadn't looked in. And so I timidly and surprised at my own audacity, but afraid too, but bravely, I I sucked up all my courage. I took a deep breath and I knocked on the door and said, hello, hello, Jesus. 
No answer. So again, surprised by bravery, but still shaken in fear, I pushed the door open. I said, Jesus, are you in here? Nothing. Jesus was not there. With a deep funeral gloom, I returned to my mother. And with a deadly sense of finality, I took the pew beside her. But now things seem to be different. They seem to be moving in slow motion. And the preacher seemed far off in the front in his black and white, mumbling his sermon and said something about bread and blood shed for you. And my mother got up and started down the aisle, way, way down the front. And she seemed almost shrunken to the size of a child. And she did childish things. She knelt down before the preacher and let him feed her. This is my mother, my strong mother, who could yank me up by the shoulder into the pew. The mother who fed me and made me eat what she put before me. And now she's acting like a child, kneeling before the minister, taking what he fed her. And she stood up and he gave her a drink from the cup. They bowed to each other and she seemed to come back to the pew on a cushion of air. And then this marvelous docility that had taken to the front, my mother, the strong woman who came back to the pew and when she sat beside me and lowered her head to pray, I actually smelled the difference. She had returned on a cloud of sweetness. I tasted this exquisite scent deep in my throat. And like a puppy, I found myself sniffing closer and closer to my mother's face. And suddenly she looked up to see my face only inches from hers. What's the matter, she whispered. And a whole bouquet of odor overwhelmed me. Mama, I breathed in wonder. What's that? She wrinkled her forehead. What's what, she said, with frankincense. That, I said. I wanted to tug at her mouth. That smell, what do I smell? What I drink. But what is it? What's inside of you? And she began to flip for a hymn in the hymnal. Oh, Wally, she said casually. That's Jesus. That's Jesus inside of me. Jesus. My mother then joined the congregation in singing a hymn with a hundred verses, but I kept on standing in the pew beside her, grinning and grinning at her profile. Jesus. I put out my hand and rested it on my mother's shoulder. She glanced up, saw that my face was exploding with grins, gave me a pat and a smile, and then went back to singing. But Jesus. She told me where Jesus was, not far away from me at all, closer to me than I had ever thought possible, in my mama. He never had been hiding. I had been looking wrong. My mighty mother was his holy temple all along. 
Jesus tells us that we can see God at work in the little things, like a mustard plant, the equivalent of a weed. People generally expect to see the evidence of God in the big stuff, when in reality, according to Jesus, it's at ankle level, spreading like a weed, or like yeast in bread. It's in the everydayness. And whether we see it or not is up to us. As Eugene Peterson said, long before I arrived on the scene, the spirit is at work. I must fit in to what's going on. We treat the continuous ways that God breaks into our lives the same way we look at a baseball team signaled. They're hidden, they're secret, they're only for the insiders like the clergy or those with a lot of time on their hands, like the infirm or the elderly. It's as if God is there, but he is hiding until we can figure out his signals. A better approach would be to simply see him where he always is, all around us. Anyone can see the activity of God in the big things, In fact, where would most of modern religion be if it didn't have the big crowds and big music, big productions, big budgets, big names, the big Christmas productions with live animals, the living Christmas tree, angels on wires descending from the ceiling, real animals, the Easter extravaganza, simulated uh, earthquakes, real hammers and spikes. Jesus flying into the rafters like Peter Pan. As one man said as he exited the Crystal Cathedral after a huge Christmas production, that was better than the real thing. (laughs) Trinity Sunday is a celebration of God with us. However humbly you think of yourself, However much you may regret what you do not have, never forget the supreme gift that is yours. More precious, more lasting than anything else you have in this world. You are a living tabernacle. God is alive in you, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we pray. Lord, we're here to know your will, to feel your love, to accept your forgiveness. May we go now to share it with a world that desperately needs it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.